short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Oh my God, fuck me. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Here I come, ladies. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> I love that to the Cold War episode one fifty. Ray, that sounds right. Actually, yeah, one fifty. Thanks, thanks for. <laughs> I'm typing. I'm, work I'm stalling. I'm typing it down so I know what show we're doing. At the end of the last episode, Ray, where do we get up to? Um, the Americans had dropped not one, but two bombs on Japan, proving one, they had the bomb, and two, the fuckers were crazy enough to use it. And that news devastated Stalin, Moscow, all the Russians who had been working on it. They are bereft. They have no idea what to do. The perfectly balanced power that was in Central Europe has now been wiped flat. Not sure if it was you know, balanced. Not balanced. Like, well, you, you got, you've got a whole bunch of guys. I got a whole bunch of guys. No one's crazy enough and we're all tired and we don't want to start fighting again. Parody, right. balance. And now, now they oh, don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I've got a million more guys than you have. Right. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle of um, August in 1945, shortly after he got home from the Potsdam Conference, Stalin summoned Boris Vanikov, the People's Commissar of Munitions, and his underlings, to the Kremlin. They were joined there by Kurchatov, Iggy K, from our last episode. And Stalin gave them a little speech. Here we go. Vodka, vodka. (laughs) A single demand... (laughs) Sorry. Since I've done my Stalin voice, I try to gotta get up. <laughs> Imagining I've got a big fucking mustache here. There you go. Twirl it. <clears throat> a single demand of you, comrades, said Stalin. Provide us with atomic weapons in the shortest possible time. You know the Hiroshima has shaken the whole world. The balance has been destroyed. Provide the bomb. It will remove great danger from us. Hmm? <laughs> yes. Hmm. And he's right. I mean, if you have something I don't, and you've already shown that you can use it and that you can wipe out an entire city with one device, I mean, yeah. Why shouldn't Stalin be paranoid at this point? He asked them how long it would take to build the bomb if they received complete and utter commitment and support from the government, yeah. and they said, five years. Five <laughs> years. <laughs> what a surprise. I said, five years. Bombs will explode. I said, five years. Anywho, um, in... Uh, as it turns out, uh, their first Soviet test took place four years right. to the month after that meeting with Stalin. And this is something you need to know about Stalin. <laughs> if you tell him, if you think it's four years, you tell right. him five. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you give yourself a buffer. 
You know, you know what Iggy K was doing? He was pulling a Scotty off Star Trek. Stalin goes, how, how, how fast can you do this? Oh, hi, Captain Ike. It's going to take me. He knows it's only going to take four years. I need five years, sir. You've got four. Aye, aye, Captain. I mean, you give yourself time. One, you're dealing with something you quite don't know. And two, you're talking to Stalin. You better get that shit right. You better, uh, you better deliver you know, before promised so you can keep your head on your shoulders. Because you know if it takes you five years and a day. Oh, that's it. Because you're going to be accused of conspiring with right. the uh, West, <laughs> you, and you'll you be are, dead. Yeah, you yeah. are sabotaging the Soviet state, and now I'm going to take the bomb that you have successfully delivered one day late, shove it up your ass, and detonate it. So, yeah, you better come in on time. Yeah, I, I, under promise and over deliver. <laughs> that's that's, 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 <laughs> that's <laughs> well, that's not your motto. I I hope one day <laughs> it will be. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah, you could you could use a little bit of Iggy K in you, I've got to say. I think what you're saying is if I was a Soviet citizen, I might be in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> Just a, a smidgen. And my fingers are really well, close together. You know, the motto of the Soviet Union was uh, from each according to his abilities oh. to each according to his work. Then I'm good. Because they're not going to well, expect much. We take- don't expect much, but to each according to his work. I think, see, you, right. you internalized the first bit. Oh, from each thank you. according to his abilities. You're like, well, I don't have any abilities, so I don't have to do anything. But the two each according to his work bit, you kind of forgot right. that. Right. You know, if yeah. this, if you and I were the Soviet Union right now, sure, sure, eh, you'd be, uh, you'd be uh, living on uh, cockroaches and alley cats that you right. can catch. I have to catch them myself. Well, that's not. That's not good. No, this is the Soviet Union. We guarantee 100% employment. So there is somebody out there right. who has the job of catching the cockroaches and the alley cats for you. Oh, thank God. Uh, oh, no, thank God. And Sorry, one, day that, yeah. Yeah, one day that person might die and then you can have that job. But you've got to... Uh, Slip right into it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, Charlie, it's Charlie work, that kind of work. <laughs> it's Charlie work. <laughs> And Charlie likes Charlie work. I don't no, he loves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all, yeah. The che- all, the, all the cheese he can eat. <laughs> I love getting in the walls and getting the rats and stuff like that. Oh, it's fun. It's, it's a great time. Oh, it's the best. I keep this place running. So, uh, anyway. It's an always sunny in Philadelphia reference for right. those of you who don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so Vanikov, actually, uh, the commissar, inadvertently, according to one of the books I read, helped... The nuclear scientists. Uh, did, did you come across this story? Vanikov. Uh, how did he help? Well, apparently, according to one story, he was a bit of a paunchy fellow. <laughs> and during one of the experiments, he kind of walked a little bit too close to the, uh, the, the nuclear fission experiment. That's not good. And uh, his body fat reflected enough neutrons because, you know, neutrons are escaping right. from the environment. Yes. A lot of them are, are – you, you want them to hit more uranium to right. create a, a chain reaction. But, you know, you, if too many are escaping – Right. Uh, if, you have too, if you have too many hit, it, it escalates too quickly. If you have too few hit – Chain reaction never takes hold. Right. His body fat reflected enough neutrons uh, to get the chain reaction to happen. They were like, a little bit closer. Stop. <laughs> stop. Hey. Right. 
Just stop right there. Don't breathe. He's like, don't breathe. Is this safe? Well, who knows? What's, really? It's safe uh, for the state. You know so Safe much. enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, from each according to his abilities, you're a fat cunt. So ju- that's your ability. Really? My- Boris, you're, you're just a fat cunt. That's all we have to say about you. Just stand there right. and every bomb they built from then on had just- Boris Vanikov uh, <laughs> built into the model. To uh, <laughs> Right. Contribution of girth. There's not. There's yeah. no shame in that. There's no shame in that. Uh, uh, he survived until 1962. Thanikov. Did he glow in the dark, or is that that's <laughs> that's not important? That's not important. <laughs> he somehow survived uh, all of the nuclear tests. Uh, yeah. You know, because he just his his fat just it's a layer baby repelled. Yeah, pre- yeah, just repelled pre- the atomic <laughs> it's a superpower. <laughs> My belly is a well, superpower. I mean, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he said to the neutrons, get in my belly. <laughs> Speaking of which, what? I started watching uh, Train Spotting 2 uh, over the weekend while I was doing laundry or something. Right. I had to put, like, I'm pretty good with my Scottish accents because I grew up with one. But uh, yeah, no, I had to turn, I had to turn the uh, subtitles on, mate, the closed <laughs> captions. Cause, what are they saying? Wow. Yeah. Oh, their accents in that man, they are harsh, <laughs> funny, and it's fa- fantastic. But just right. oh, br- yeah. brutal accents. <laughs> Lovely people, right? Anyway, um, now so you know we we've talked in the past about how when Stalin got warning of the Nazi attack, yeah. Operation Barbarossa in 1941, he kind of didn't fuck? believe it. Yeah, no. Now we're solid. Uh, Sorry. You know, his decision to start work on the bomb in 1942 showed considerable foresight, and now uh, he's going to throw everything he has at it. But again, in a fairly desperate situation, as we explained last time, four million Nazis invaded, (laughs) they're broke, they're fucked, their army's tied together with chewing gum and uh, silly string. Right. Um, you know, he still is doing something, not as much as the Americans, no, because they have the advantage of but, being over there right. and <laughs> having a booming there. economy, right? Not bombed. At that stage, yeah, war, yeah. war-based economy, but still, yeah, uh, yeah, not bombed. Uh, but he, he, you know, he he got into he got it going. early on because you know why. And of course, go ahead, go ahead. Well, the last thing he can have wanted to hear was that Germany, Britain, and the United States right. were working in great secrecy yeah. to develop a bomb of unprecedented destructive force back yes. in the early 40s. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he took the step of setting up a small-scale project and, uh, you know, we have to give him credit for that, particularly under the circumstances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're beating down on the doors of Moscow. But there's a very famous Russian saying, believe it or not, it's actually in a Texas accent. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. So he wasn't going to be fooled again. He's like, OK, I didn't listen to all the warnings. And there were multiple from multiple sources that Germany is going to attack. He doesn't listen to it. He's like, never again. Even though it's a small project, you're right. He absolutely gets it started in the darkest of times in the war in the East. Again, that's that's pretty impressive. 
Now, when Molotov heard what Truman had said at Potsdam, uh, remember that uh, he's like, uh, oh, Joe, by the way, uh, just uh, side note, mention it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> side note, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a new weapon. Uh, it's pretty good. And Joe was like, thumbs up, dude. Good, good for try. you. Cowabunga. Um, got a got a plane to catch right uh when molotov heard that he i mean obviously he knew what was going on as well as stalin did they saw it as an attempt to gain some sort of concessions from the soviet union they saw it as a threat against the soviet union from day one how could they not but yeah 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 I mean, they saw the use of the bomb in Japan, and we talked about this back right. in our Manhattan project and the bomb things, because uh, and they were right. I mean, there were some in the American leadership, definitely, who did see this as uh, uh, a the, warning the, the, threat. Yes, yeah, the decision to use the bomb in Japan, at least in part, and. Probably, I mean, it's debatable, right. but probably, I think, in a large part, based on all of the evidence that we uncovered during that uh, those episodes, was as a you know shot across the bow of right. the Soviet Union. We got it, and we're prepared to use it. Yeah. Well, the other part of that is, I mean, you and I spent, I don't know how many hours, uh, FDR did a pretty decent job. He actually strove mightily to try to get along with Stalin. And because they have a mutual enemy at the time, things they got a pretty good relationship as far as that goes. But even then, as we said last time, FDR does not tell Stalin about the bomb. He, he, he ignores Niels Bohr advice to be open and honest with the Russians. So if FDR is not going to tell him, Truman's certainly not going to tell him. And then when they use it, how could Stalin not see that as a threat? And besides, if I've got 7 million troops and you've got 10 bombs, you're going to win because you can just bomb my, my biggest cities. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't see how people could think that Stalin could not see that as a threat. If you just even, even if you ignore his paranoia, it's a threat and it was meant to be uh, perceived that way. And, and again, just to, to remind people, Marxist, Leninist and Stalinist uh, thought philosophy, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, mm-hmm. fundamentally believed that the capitalist powers would do everything they could to destroy any sort of uh, socialist experiment, socialist right. government, socialist country. That was foundational. That that belief, this isn't just Stalin's paranoia. Right. This is foundational to Marxist thought because... Uh, a, a socialist experiment, uh, particularly if it's successful in delivering benefits to its people, is a direct threat to capitalists in a capitalist country because they their in, in, inherent fear is that the people in their own country right. will want socialism. They will want free education, free health care, guaranteed employment, you know, um, and all of the benefits that were promised by socialism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now that the the US and the UK as their allies had access to this bomb, and again, got to keep in mind that it was only 25 years earlier that the US and the UK had actually sent troops <laughs> to invade Russia to fight the Bolsheviks. Yeah, yeah. It's real So for this them. isn't... It's real. Uh, 
this kind of get this pisses me off when I read um, a lot of the histories of Stalin in this era. You know, it gets depicted as Stalin's crazed paranoia. Uh, yeah, pretty good reason <laughs> to be paranoid. They actually invaded the country, right? Within his lifetime, he and within yeah. all of their lifetimes as fought? well. He fought yeah. in that war. Oh yeah, this this isn't. Uh, you know, Abstract. paranoid delusions exactly. here. No, th- exactly. this really happened. So, the, the, so the Soviets need to figure out what to do with this. Um, now, Margaret Gowing, the English historian who worked in the cabinet office mm-hmm. from 1945 to 1959, and has written one of the most authoritative accounts. Authoritative, 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 or authoritative. Authoritative or authoritative? I'm going to go authoritative. Let's just say one of the good, <laughs> goodest accounts of Britain's nuclear weapons program right. wrote, right. if Russia had been formally consulted about the bomb during the war, it might have made no difference. Mm. The fact that she was not guaranteed that the attempts made just after the war to establish international control, which might have failed anyway, were doomed. And yeah. to my recollection, there wasn't a lot of efforts to establish international control, yeah. right? Talk. Yeah. I think part of... From memory, uh, they said... They did provide something to the Soviets like... You know, we could bring you into this, but you'd need to give us complete access That's to all right. of your facilities and let us bring people in. A bit like the Marshall Plan. Right. Plan. Economically. You know, we yeah. we could include you in this, but you would need to let us go through your books and uh, send over inspectors and, and stuff. I was system. like, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> you know? I just off. fought a war to keep foreigners out. What the fuck is yeah. wrong with you? You yeah. invaded my fucking country 25 <laughs> years ago. Why would... Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that never got off the ground. Right. Now, if I could, and I, I hope I'm interrupting you, but so 1945 comes around, the two bombs are dropped. For Stalin and his men, all the people that work in the Kremlin, it, this is like deja vu all over again. In the 1920s and the 1930s and the USSR scientists were... Sorry, wait, wait. Yeah, no, yeah. You can't, say, you, you can't say deja vu all over again. I can't. Deja vu. Deja vu. Deja vu means all over again. Oh, it's a double. Okay, so yeah. deja vu yeah, squared. It's, it's redundant. It's redundant. It's redundant. Okay. Just, just say it's it is deja vu. See okay. that that's oh. all you have to say. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. So okay. the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties for the Soviet uh, lawmakers, it's deja vu because they promised back then they strove mightily to be. Basically, their position was, we will not accept. It will be intolerable for us to be economically or technologically backwards compared to the West, certainly in military matters, because we already know we can't trust these people. Like you said, they tried to invade at the end of World War I. So for all of that, all that struggle that they did for those two decades, they go through this horrendous war. Now they're back to square one behind the United States. It's time for a plan. It's time to put something together and work on this because this cannot stand. Now, the the stuff that they'd been working on up until this point, they'd obviously had to develop a whole bunch of new military technology during World War II. Yeah. 
Uh, and atomic energy, as we've said, was low down the priority list sure. for most of that time because they had real things like <laughs> long-range rockets right. and radar and jet propulsion that they were working on. But they were lagging behind all yes. of those as well, at least until they got their hands on some, some uh, clever Germans to help out. Yeah. But they knew that they needed to catch up as quickly as possible with the bomb. Now, they uh, obviously had also been hit a lot by the purge, and I want to talk a little bit about that over the course of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who I think we touched on back in our purge episodes, but uh, you know, I want to talk about his story in a little bit more detail. Okay. So uh, back in the early 30s, 1933, Tukhachevsky, set up the Reaction Research Institute, the RNII. That sounds good. Which, it's a great name. Yeah. yeah. The Reaction, not the Rocket. Like, oh, I would have gone with your Rock, old Rocket yeah, Research. Right, yeah. Rocket Man. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, Tukhachevsky, for those people who, who don't know who he was, um, he was considered like sort of the great... Soviet uh, military theorist, uh, military leader and military theoretician. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was known in the West as the Red Napoleon (laughs) because of a lot of his um, military strategy and theory. You know, he fought against... <clears throat> the West when they invaded the Soviet Union uh, in 1920s and the whole Polish-Soviet war and that kind of stuff, <clears throat> yeah, it didn't help them win. Right. But um, you know, he was he was very very highly regarded as a very clever guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's often credited with the theory of deep operation, which oh. sounds sexy to it, me. It does. Uh, yeah, especially when a Russian's doing it to you. Go ahead. D- Deep penetration was the first thing that he called it, but uh, that was too sexy. Right, right. Clean that up. Oh, man, yeah, it was too sexy, you know. So just change the deep operation. I think of it as deep penetration, though. That's my code name for it. You should. Yeah. That's why he was the red Napoleon, because after he deeply penetrated you, (laughs) there was a lot of of red. Right. And you turned French. Anyway. (laughs) What? <laughs> anyway, deep operation is where you have um, arms formations that strike deep behind enemy lines to destroy logistics, mm-hmm. uh, the your logistics train. While you're fighting on the front, you manage to get in behind, which, I mean, Alexander the Great, everyone used to do that. This isn't a new idea, but uh, he, he sort of modernized it for the Soviets. Right. Uh, it was... Um, you know, deliberate strategy. This is what we're going to try and figure out how to do. Now, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, during early 1936, uh, Tukhachevsky took a trip as the head of a Soviet dele- delegation to the funeral of King George V. And so he visited the United Kingdom, he visited right. France, he visited Germany as part of this, uh, going around just uh, shaking yeah. people's hands. Tour. Um, yeah. But the uh, Secret Service, the I think it was still the OGPU then, uh, were following him. Oh, shit. Supposedly. Right. They were suspicious uh, of the conversations that he was having. 
1937, he was arrested and charged with treason, mm. basically doing deals right. with these foreign powers uh, because he believed that another war was coming, <clears throat> that the Soviets would lose that war, and he wanted to uh, do a deal with the uh, powers that he thought were going to win that war, particularly Germany. Look out for himself. Um, well, for himself, but also uh, maybe for the country. Oh, take it easy uh, on us, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Look, we'll we'll work, basically collaborationist, right. uh, Vichy kind of an approach, right? We'll, you know, listen. You're probably going to kick our asses. <laughs> uh, we all understand that. So when you do, right? I, you know, I'm the guy. Come to me. Um, this is this were the these were the allegations, right? Right. right. Now. Under torture, he confessed that a guy called Avel Yunikidze mm-hmm. had recruited him way back in 1928. Wow. And that Yunikidze was a German agent in cahoots with Nikolai Bukharin. Oh, and gotcha. Together, they were all going to seize power uh, before, during, or after a German invasion. Gotcha. Now, Yenikutsu was another old Bolshevik. Um, he was arrested also in 1937 and under torture uh, confessed to a whole bunch of stuff as well. But he was accused of being the principal organiser of the assassination of Sergei Kirov. Mm-hmm. And the 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 poisoning of uh, Maxim Gorky. Now, do you, you remember the Kirov story we told back in the day? No, remind me. Um, he was like the head of the uh, uh, Leningrad Party, uh, you know, uh, communist party. Yes, uh, that sounds uh, familiar. What would you call it? You know, he was the yeah. the, the, the functioning uh, in Leningrad. Uh, old and very close friend of Stalin's got shot in the back of the head as he was walking into his office one day. Um, there, and it's it sort of started Stalin's crackdown on what he believed were uh, like a fifth column, basically mm-hmm. operating inside of the Soviet Union. There have been stories and rumors ever since that Stalin orchestrated the assassination oh, himself to justify a crackdown. Right. It's a bit of a burning of the Reichstag kind of thing. Right. But but all of the uh, modern historians that I've read in recent times, my, um, all of whom actually are uh, anti-Stalin, they're very critical of Stalin, and including the, Ru- the, the Russians in this mix, like uh, Oleg, um, uh, whatever his name is, uh, uh, they all say there's no evidence that's ever turned up in Stalin's archives, and we get a lot, a lot of a lot of stuff that turned up in Stalin's archives. Right? There's no evidence that he had anything to do with it. No evidence uh, to indicate anything other than he was genuinely uh, destroyed and shocked um, by Kirov's assassination. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, Unikitsi was. Um, accused of being the principal organiser of that. I don't believe there's any evidence of that either, but he was accused of it. Right. Now, Tukhachevsky's confession, which survives, by the way, in the archives and is covered in dried blood. Oh, damn. They don't play. Um, and, and not just 
brown blood, but a spray of brown blood, which uh, yeah. is, you know... That's uh, how you do uh, it. CSI Moscow has right. determined that it was created by <laughs> blood being spattered by a body in motion. Oh. Hanging by your ankles yeah. from a rope, uh, being <laughs> asked to sign this thing while you're being beaten. Did you see Deadpool um, 2? I'd be like, you don't even have to use your knife. I'll tell you anything you want to know. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Tell me when to shut up, and I'm going to start talking. I will answer any questions that you have of me. Please don't hurt me with that knife. Uh, straight up. I, yeah. I will turn on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he did say that, but they, you know, just beat him anyway. <laughs> well, that's what they get paid for. Um, when his confession was given to Stalin, Stalin apparently commented, it's incredible, but it's a fact they admit it. And mm. both men were executed. Right. Now, you know, uh, to my mind, yeah. when somebody confesses to something under, under torture... Oh, yeah. It's highly dubious. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think, generally speaking, most historians um, don't accept that these confessions were legitimate because they were extracted under torture. That said, uh, after the uh, U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in 2001 and 2003, 2002-2003, there were lots of people that were arrested by the United States military Mm -hmm. who were tortured for years and years and years. So... You know, on one hand, American historians say you can't trust confessions extracted under torture. On the other hand, the American military totally embraced... I'm not sure if what the current f- policy is, but as far as I know, it's still legal. Trump said he was for... okay with it. He, Trump said he was okay with enhanced interrogations. Right. Yeah. I'd like to see Trump... Uh... <laughs> Undergo waterboarding. I reckon that would be fun. That's when if he said that to me, I was. He goes, "I'm okay with that." I go, "Great. Well, why don't you tick it off? Come over here, lie down. Right. Uh, what oh did God. you know, and when did you know it?" He would shit himself. Um, yeah. So, like, it, it's you know, this is we don't want to be hypocritical here. On one hand, no. the West uh, employs torture to extract confessions, uh, and and justifies it as being legally acceptable. But right. when the Soviets did it, it's deemed to be um, ridiculous and can't be trusted. So right. I don't know. Yeah. Personally, I think, I, I, if, you know, if you ask me, I think you can't trust any confession extracted under torture. No, because I will say anything you want me to say to stop. I mean, that's just human nature. You, you'll, so. you'll just do that without torture, <laughs> I, as we just know. show me one pair of pliers like, oh, nope, I'll tell you everything you want to know right now. You ask me, you tell me what to say, and I will repeat it so you can get it on tape. Ready? Action. No problem. I just have to yeah. I just have to tell you to say it, and you'll say it. I mean, I don't have to even threaten well, you. Well, torture comes in many forms, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah. yeah. 
I was just going to just do a real quick note uh, just to tie all that together, not that you have to be finished, but as far as that institute that he helped set up when he gets arrested and what that institute was, um, some of what that institute was looking into was building various types of rockets, um, long range, short range, whatever, but they were, they were, it was mostly theoretical. They were working on that, but when he gets arrested, the institute suffers and a lot of the people that worked at that institute get arrested as well and suddenly they've hit themselves at the knees for something that is going to be very needed not only during World War II but afterwards when they're trying to catch up to the Americans. Yeah, but if they believe that Tukhachevsky was fifth column... That's true. ...then all of the people working for him are probably fifth column. So they got to go. Um, but the question is, did they really believe that or did Stalin just want to get rid of him? Now, right. uh, after Stalin's death in '53. Uh, and during the Khrushchev thaw, as it's often referred to, when Khrushchev, remember, came out with the secret, the secret speech that he gave to the Communist Party leadership and said, you know what, Stalin was a crazy motherfucker and, uh, uh, you know, we were all terrified of yeah. him. Which, by the way, modern historians sort of take two different views on that. Some mm. believe... I mean, if you read the pro-Soviet uh, biographies and histories, they will say, well, Khrushchev was just uh, an, not a Marxist. He really just did this to destroy Stalinism right. uh, and to you know, write deviation stuff he was trying to introduce. So he just besmirched Stalin. Stalin's reputation, all the people that worked closely with Stalin, himself accepted, of course, because right. he was very close to Stalin for many years. To give himself room. Um, Gotcha. Yeah, to yeah. get rid of the uh, uh, Stalin Marxist Leninist guys and to uh, uh, distance himself mm. from all of that. Yeah. Others, of course, accept his uh, version of events and you know prefer to believe that it's all true. Uh, but after Stalin's death, Unikidze and Tukhachevsky were both posthumously rehabilitated by Khrushchev. Right. So their confessions were rejected and uh, they were considered to be good Soviets and posthumously uh, uh, awarded uh, various honours. Right. Now, British historian Robert Conquest, who was one of the first guys to really write about this period in great detail, I think he coined it the term the Great Terror, he accused Nazi party leader Heinrich Himmler right. and Reinhard Heydrich mm -hmm. of forging documents that implicated Tukhachevsky in an anti-Stalinist conspiracy Ooh. in conjunction with the Wehrmacht uh, general staff mm -hmm. and leaked that to, had that leaked to Stalin nice. in order to get Stalin to get rid of the Red Napoleon. Right. Because his thing is to work up and keep improving military doctrine, tactics, that kind of stuff. So you want someone like that taken out if you're going to attack the country. Yeah. In 1989, the Politburo in the Soviet Union announced that they had uncovered new evidence in the Stalin archives that suggested that German intelligence's intentions were to fabricate disinformation about Tukhachevsky with the goal of getting rid of him and they wrote, knowledge of personal characteristics of Stalin, like paranoia and extreme suspicion, right. had been possibly the highest factor in it. Mm. So they knew Stalin was paranoid. And look, 
for good reason. I mean, we, we need to keep in mind that, you know, Stalin grew up in the era of the czarist, the late stages of the czarist regime, where yeah. there was a lot of uh, secret police, the czarist secret oh, yes. police that were betraying everybody. Oh, yes. People were going to jail. People were getting assassinated left, right and centre. Then in the uh, early stages of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, there was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, conniving going on. There's a lot of enemies inside and outside of the party. A lot of different uh, people vying for power. You know, we have this view of Stalin, I think, sometimes as this... um, untouchable dictator on a hill surrounded by a Praetorian guard <laughs> of 10,000 guys is right. you know, but it wasn't wasn't like that at all he knew he you know Kirov was assassinated he knew he could be assassinated at any time he genuinely had guys inside of the Soviet Union Bolsheviks who were his enemies, who were trying to take him down. He wasn't Mr. Popular. He, no. he fought his way to the he position survived. of... Yeah. 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 Um, you know, they knew about Lenin's uh, testimony that said, you know, don't, don't let Stalin have any more power. He's a bit crazy. He, he, Trotsky had been out, you know, taking him on, trying to uh, undo him. Had been Even when he was in exile, he was criticising... Uh, Stalin constantly as as you know a danger to the long term survival of uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah. So uh, and Bukharin, uh, you know, had been a, a critic as well. So he had critics who were trying to take him down politically. Assassinations had happened. Uh, Kirov being one of the most high profile example. Um, so or recent example. So look at. It, it wasn't craziness. You know, you, you're yeah. not necessarily paranoid if people are secretly watching you. Um, he he had good reason, is my point, to be yeah. suspicious and looking over his shoulder because he had... And on top of that, again, getting back to this fundamental premise of Marxism that the, the capitalist powers, the Western powers, with a ton of money to bribe people... Mm-hmm. You know, would be you know his belief, and it was a realistic belief as well as the Germans would be trying to infiltrate and create a fifth column uh, to to undermine Stalin's government and the Soviet government from within, just like the Americans are having the same paranoia about Putin. Today, <laughs> you know, the latest allegations is oh, now they're trying, now Putin's trying to get Bernie, Bernie Sanders, yeah, to win the nomination to, to get Americans to tear each other apart. <laughs> the Democrats are tearing each other apart over Bernie, <laughs> and it's all part of Putin's cunning plan, master plan. <laughs> so, you know, when we talk about Stalin, we go, Oh, he was paranoid, but then in America today, yeah. <laughs> We go, well, it's real. I mean, it's not paranoia if it's real. They really are trying to tear us apart. They're coming at us left and right and centre. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's how Stalin felt in 1934, yeah. right? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier. Bukharin was certainly one of the ones who was after, who didn't think much of Stalin, who was one who was trying to ruin him, um, ruin his relationship with Lenin. 
and there's a lot of there's a lot of political assassinations. There were some literal assassinations, but when Stalin is made general secretary of the party, that's when he's able to put a lot of things in place to take out his enemies, protect himself. So all, it's basically like growing up on the streets of Chicago, except for it's Russia. Everybody's out to get everybody else before they get you, and you develop a thick skin, you develop a tough mindset, but that shit is all real, and so he's going to carry that on when he becomes uh, the leader, and it's just going to be countries instead of people. So he thinks a certain way, but he has every right to think that way because that's what his entire life has been, a fight for daily survival. And I should point out, for people who don't know who Bakarin was, just a, a quick bio on Bakarin, mm-hmm. uh, original Bolshevik, old Bolshevik, um, very close uh, with Lenin and Trotsky in yeah. the exile years before the revolution. After the revolution, he becomes a you know, senior player in the party. Oh, yeah. Is initially, initially on the left side of it, gradually moves to the right side, uh, was... was Big supporter of Lenin's new economic policy, but and, and then he and he's very close to Stalin too in the sort of mid nineteen twenties. Um, together, he and Stalin ganged up on Trotsky, Zinoviev, and Kamenev, and had them expelled from the party in nineteen twenty seven. And then he, from twenty six to twenty nine, he's the general secretary of the Comintern, but. Then when Stalin pushed through collectivization, mm-hmm. where he said, listen, we need to rapidly and massively uh, increase our agricultural capability uh, or we're going to starve to death. Yeah. We can't have the, you know, they'd been trying before then to get the farmers to uh, willingly, voluntarily collectivize. Right. Um, and and you know have strength in numbers and be, organizations of yeah yeah organization economics of size adopt the latest technologies the latest agricultural practices and all that kind of stuff and and people just weren't doing it right uh, because they didn't want to change and they were like fuck you I'm okay why should I do that so eventually Stalin you know forced them into collectivization listen we don't have time to fuck around anymore we're going right. to die. Population's growing. We've got 200 million already. You know, it's growing, you know, birth, high birth rate because, you know, we're a bunch of orthodox <laughs> who like to fuck. And, and uh, birth, rate's, birth rate's growing and uh, we can't feed ourselves. Right. So he forced through collectivization. So Bukharin was against that. He fought Stalin on collective, forced collectivization. Yeah. And as a result, he was expelled from the Politburo in yeah. 1929 and became another one of Stalin's. Uh, intellectual foes within right. the um, yeah. Communist Party. Yeah. Now, but other historians uh, believe that Stalin himself leaked information to the Nazis right. using a known double agent, a guy called Nikolai Skoblin, to suggest that Tukhachevsky would be open to a plot. Ooh, so the theory is game. that Stalin yeah. tricked the Nazis into thinking <laughs> that they tricked him. God, my head's spinning. Okay. That's exactly what I wanted you to think. Ha ha! <laughs> it's like a, master. You know, a, a Doctor Who uh, double plot bl- line resolution. Double bluff. I actually uh, reversed the polarity on your <laughs> uh, execution machine, so you executed yourself. Right. Ha ha! Because I knew that you were going to execute me, right. even though you pretended to be my friend. 
1956, a but, defector from the NKVD, the uh, Soviet Secret Service, Alexander Mikhailovich Orlov, published an article in Life magazine called The Sensational Secret Behind the Damnation of Stalin. That's a title. That's a title. Now, he claimed yeah. that he was aware that NKVD agents had, in fact, planned a coup d'etat along with Tukhachevsky and other senior officers in the Red Army. And then, according to Orlov, Stalin uncovered the conspiracy and used Yetsov, the head of the NKVD, to execute the people responsible. How many layers? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is an NKVD defector. Right. Now... Simon uh, Scumbag Monte, sorry, Seabag Montefiore, <laughs> the British historian who researched the Soviet archives as they got opened up, on the other hand, states right. Stalin needed neither Nazi disinformation nor mysterious files to persuade him to destroy Tukhachevsky. Stalin and his cronies were convinced that officers were to be distrusted and physically exterminated at the slightest suspicion. Damn. He reminisced to Voroshilov in an undated note about the officers arrested in the summer of 1918. These officers we wanted to shoot en masse. Oh, God. Now... You don't play. Stalin and Tuka didn't get along during the Polish War. Tuka controlled the army. Right. Um, as, as In terms of the military side of it. Remember, Trotsky controlled the army, uh, well, the Red Army in general, mm-hmm. um, during the early years. And Stalin was there as a political commissar during the Polish War. Yeah. And uh, he, and that's when he and Trotsky really had a big falling out. It's also when he and Tukhachevsky had a big falling out. Damn. Um, by the way, Simon Seabag Montefiore's mother escaped Russia after the rev- revolution. Mm-hmm. So I, I've always suspected that he sort of has an inherent uh, anti-Bolshevik right. uh, bias, but Possible. that's a side point. Yeah. Now, according to Montefiore, Stalin had always believed that the Red Army was the only institution that could stop him from achieving absolute power. I mean, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd studied his history. He knew yeah. what the Praetorian Guard was capable of. Yeah. Uh, and so he was paranoid about anyone who didn't show complete and utter loyalty to him, oh. that they, they might, you know, uh, be used to stage a coup d'etat. And, you know, we've talked about this in our Venezuela series, in our Bolivia series on the bullshit filter as well. Yeah, yeah, militaries uh, have been and continue to be used to overthrow governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite often, if you look at Latin America in the last hundred years or so, they over the military of Latin American countries overthrow democratically elected yes. governments when the United States and the CIA come in with a big bucket of cash. Yeah. And say, uh, we're looking for a general who <laughs> wants to retire in Miami in 10 years. On a yacht. Uh, Big one. Yeah, yeah. With, with a lot of coke and hookers. Uh, all you need to do is help us get rid of this guy because he's a fucking commie and we don't like him. Right. He's not, he's not playing he's not ball. Running, yeah. Yeah, he's not playing ball. Uh, and, and, and totally reasonable 
for Stalin to believe that that could be going on sure. in the Soviet Union in the 30s as well. Yeah. Um, if if not the the British, if not the Americans do it, then the British doing it or the Germans doing it. Yeah. Um, now he might be right. Maybe it was all just Stalin's paranoia. But again, I want to I want to call back uh, on another side. Uh, our old mate, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union at the time, Joe Davies, Joseph E. Davies. Mm-hmm. He actually attended some of the nineteen thirty seven and nineteen thirty eight trials. Right. He himself had been a trial lawyer in the United States. So he knows, and he wrote. Uh, confidential memo to Cordell Hull, who was then the Secretary of State, Mm -hmm. and said that in his opinion, as a trial lawyer who witnessed the trials, the defendants were guilty as charged. Right. He said to have assumed that this proceeding was invented and staged as a project of dramatic political fiction would be to presuppose the creative genius of a Shakespeare and the genius of Belasco in a stage production. Uh, after, after witnessing the trials, he also met with Winston Churchill and he wrote in his memoirs, over the coffee, Churchill was interested in these purge trials, in mm-hmm. inverted commas. Right. He plied me with questions. I told him the truth as I saw it. It obviously was a great surprise to the diplomatic guests. That sort of talk is not fashionable here. So violent is the prejudice. Uh. Churchill has no love for the communists. He has had some bitter experiences with them. He is, however, fair and judicial-minded and wants to know the facts. He is definitely not a wishful thinker. I gave the facts as interpreted from the Soviet viewpoint and briefly outlined the argument of the government in these cases. Churchill said that I'd given him a completely new concept of the situation. Now, keeping in mind, this is before Churchill had ever met Stalin. Right. When he does meet Stalin a couple of years later, they uh, tend to get along to to a degree. I mean, Churchill writes a lot of complimentary things about Stalin in his letters back to his family. Uh, not so much in his official accounts of World War Two, right? But in his in his private letters, he speaks very highly of him as being very impressive character, very intelligent, um, and they had a bit of a connection. Even though you know Stalin thought Churchill was a complete right fucking loser, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he had no respect for him. Neither did FBR and neither did FDR or Truman, as I recall. They both thought Churchill was a tosser, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Churchill, Churchill admired him. Now, and I want to point out too that Joseph E. Davies these days is considered a bit of a, a soft on the Soviets right. kind of a guy. Yes. Um, so you, you could look at it from that perspective. Oh, he was just uh, soft on yeah. the Soviet Taking Union. Taking their point of view. Yeah. Or, you know, you could say that that opinion of him is based on anti-Soviet propaganda and his views as one of the only guys in the West who was an actual witness at the trials and was a trial lawyer himself. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, you have to think he has some level of credibility here. So anyway, I don't know. It's, It's... Look, as I told you the other day, I've spent an inordinate amount of time trying to unpick 
the purge trials and get a sense that that I, I'm comfortable with about right. all of this, and not just the trials, but the purges in general. Um, you know, there's no doubt that millions of people got caught up in it. But the question is, how justified were these trials uh, versus, yeah. you know, the, the common Western depiction, which is, well, Stalin was just batshit crazy and just, uh, you know, just arrested innocent people yeah. for the hell of it. Pulled a like he, he had, yeah. well, he had, you know, he had work that needed to be done in Siberia. They were trying to build the infrastructure in Siberia. And he wanted prison labor to do it, so he just randomly rounded up millions of people and sent them to Siberia to, you know, be a work uh, chain gang yeah. out there. Versus, uh, so that's that's the extreme case uh, in the West. The extreme case in the, on the left, even in the West, is oh, everything Stalin did was completely justified. These were uh, the numbers are inflated. Uh, they were lo- much lower than that. Besides, if you say it was more like a couple of million, and America's got a couple of million people in jail today, so, you know, yeah. what are you complaining about? These were legitimate people who were arrested, majority of them, for legitimate crimes, theft, burglary, murder, you know, theft is burglary, murder, yeah. um, the other, other sorts of uh, regular crimes. The political prisoner component of it was quite small, and they were genuine genuine people who were considered to be conspiring with uh, fifth columns that were going to impede on Stalin's ability to, A, prepare the country for war, and B, upgrade the country's infrastructure um, in order to be able to meet the demands of feeding and clothing uh, the nation as well as being prepared for war. That's the extreme left view. Stalin's a hero he should, he should, you know, he should be admired for what he did. Right. You know, my my tendency is to think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of those, and I'm trying to figure out exactly where it is. But it's very difficult. Even those Stephen Kotkin books, right? You you read those, and right up the front, I mean, his biases are quite evident. Like in the first paragraph, he calls Stalin a uh, uh, insane mass murderer. Or something yeah. paraphrasing, but something to that effect. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, you know, when you start a biography by calling somebody <laughs> an insane mass murderer. You're not being objective. Well, I kind of know, yeah, I kind of know where you stand. I'd right. prefer that a biographer in this case, with a topic as complicated as this, gives me the facts and yeah. doesn't, you know, and people will call me a hypocrite for that because, you know, whilst we do try and provide the facts as best we can on this, we, 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 we editorialize. But we're not historians. No. We are storytellers. There's a right. big difference. We don't claim to be historians. We are storytellers. Entertainers, and influencers. No, yeah, no. entertainers <laughs> of the of the greatest kind. <laughs> well, speak if I could just real quick, speaking you were you were thinking that the truth is somewhere in the middle. That's what I've always assumed. Let's say I'm like one of the old hands. I've been around with Lenin, I've been around I was there in the during the revolution and now I'm there in the early 1920s whatever before Lenin dies, I think in 1924, 25. Um if I see that Stalin is gaining power despite my best efforts and I see that he is um taking the country in a direction that I don't agree with intellectually, maybe I do start talking bad about him. Maybe I do start whispering to other friends who think like I do. Maybe we are directly, indirectly, passively, whatever, 
planning something out. And so Stalin finds out and has me removed. That doesn't make him an insane killer. That makes him someone who's trying to protect himself from real or possibly imagined threats. He's also trying to protect the state because he is trying to move the state forward. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There were threats against him. He's got to remove them. And if they don't like what he's doing, there's a lot of threats. He's got to remove a lot of people. And he comes across as a lunatic. I think it helps. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it helps to think of the Soviet Union at that time, mm-hmm. like we think about Rome under the Caesars, yes. under Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, etc. Uh, you've got a lot of very intelligent, very ambitious men yeah. who have been around, involved with the Bolsheviks as long as Stalin, that believe that they deserve an equal amount yeah. of power at the very least. Yeah, put my time for in. The work. Yeah. 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 They've been work- like by the mid 30s. They've been involved uh, in the Bolshevik leadership for 35 years. Uh 30 35 years, you know, since the original struggles in the early 1900s, the right. original attempts at revolution. Yeah. They've been in exile. They've had friend they've sacrificed enormous amounts um, of hardship friends, family have died, been arrested, tortured, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They want power as well. Now Stalin has got himself in a position where he is pretty much a, a dictator. Yeah, They're not happy with that, just like various uh, senators in Rome under the Caesars weren't happy with Augustus or Tiberius or Caligula having right. all the power. Yeah. There are going to be conspiracies. There are going to be plots. Yeah. That's undeniable. You have to be naive to the extreme <laughs> right. to believe that there weren't conspiracies and plots going on to overthrow Stalin. Some of them, no doubt, involved foreign influence. Mm-hmm. You know, there absolutely there would have been well like so you're the Germans, let's say you're the Germans or the Americans or the British in the 30s. Right. Uh, do you think you are trying to find spies and collaborators within the Soviet Union that can help overthrow the Bolsheviks and install a government more friendly to your economic and military objectives? Yeah, I got an entire department set up just for that purpose. Everybody does. Ex- exactly. So, you look, I, I, this is, I can say this with confidence at this stage. There were absolutely uh, Russian elite Bolsheviks, ambitious men who were trying, that, that, that were fomenting conspiracies and plots against Stalin. They just had to have been. There were absolutely foreign entities trying to support directly or indirectly those sorts of activities. How advanced they were, how um, realistic they were, Mm -hmm. how big or small they were, uh, I can't say. But they absolutely were going on and Stalin had genuine reasons to fear them. Because, yeah. uh, you know, at least some of those plots involved his assassination. Um, he wasn't the only guy who wanted power, right, right. over there. He was he just, just one won. of many guys yeah. who yeah. wanted power. He wasn't a Caesar. Like, he wasn't an Augustus or a Tiberius or a Caligula. They go, hey, my, my adopted father 
grandfather, great grandfather, was Julius Caesar, who is a god, by the way. So back down, motherfuckers. Um, he didn't have enormous wealth like no. the Caesars did right. to bribe people. I mean, he had access, obviously, to the Soviet Treasury to various levels. By the way, like all the historians that I read, including the ones that are highly critical of Stalin, go to lengths to point out to the end of his life, he lived very simply. Very simple office, very simple Dasha furnishings, didn't go on extravagant holidays, didn't have hidden bank accounts and diamonds and jewels. Right. You know, wore a basic, simple military uniform every day. Yeah. Um, And in fact, according to his children, uh, some of whom turned on him later, but uh, Svetlana, I think, in one of her biographies on him early on, said uh, when when anyone tried to blow smoke up his ass. He tended to shoot them down very quickly. Right. Um, I think it was Khrushchev who originally started calling him Vojt, the Russian version of Führer, and Stalin shot it down. Stalin actually claimed in these years that the cult of personality that was built up around him was the doing of his enemies, which they were going to then use against him. Right. Later on, Molotov said that Stalin used to say that, I think, in Molotov's uh, memoirs later on. Mm -hmm. Stalin said to him very well, and they're going to do that to use it against me. And he tried to shut it down for years, but then, according to Molotov, he ended up liking it just a little bit. Yeah. Um, You know, and I think it's a bit like Tiberius, uh, you know, when we told his story, he spent 10 years basically saying, no, you can't build statues of me. No, you can't call me a god. No, don't do me any special favours. No, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I'm just a man. And eventually he was like, oh, fuck it. Do what you want. Like, you know, seriously, I'm I'm over it. You can pray, but it's not going to cure your gout, whatever you want to do. I was just going to say, as far as Tukhachevsky goes, the last thing I wanted to say about him was uh, he was arrested. The Institute takes a hit. A lot of other leading rocket engineers uh, were were arrested as well. And after that, Stalin only allows um, rocket research on stuff like rocket artillery and rocket boosters for aircraft, which makes sense because you've got to get ready for a war. Then the war comes. And when Stalin, oh, it's only when Stalin hears about the German V-1 and V-2 rockets in 1944 does one he allow research into long-range rockets. And two, he admits to some of his comrades that it was a mistake when he had uh, Tukhachevsky and his comrades arrested. Um, those who are still alive, or some of them are released out of prison and allowed to work. Some of them have to stay in prison, but they are forced to work on rocket research. Well, I want to wrap it up there, but mm-hmm. I, I did want to just finish that. According to the modern historians who have been through the archives, There's no evidence of a plot in the archives, but there is plenty of evidence, they say, that all of the charges against guys like Tukhachevsky and Bukharin were contrived by the NKVD under the direction of Stalin. Right. So, you know, to be fair, that's what the uh, archivists say, including mm-hmm. Oleg Kavelniuk. This is the guy who's uh, heads up sort of the archives, the Stalin archives in the Soviet Union today, who, yeah. you know, under, under Putin, anyway, it seems to be that uh, yeah, Stalin's memory is starting to be rehabilitated a little bit more over there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're certainly not uh, anti, massively anti-Stalin. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's any upside for Kavelniuk to... His book only came out a couple of years ago to uh, 
to to paint Stalin uh, deliberately negatively. So you know he's probably telling the truth. Um, so anyway, yeah, that is all I want to say about that. Uh, when we come back in episode one fifty one, we'll talk about the uh, some of the the, the repercussions of Tukhachevsky's removal. Mm-hmm. Gold. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Win, win, win. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Mm, that's a good point. It's all relative. Pedophile. <laughs>